Last week, the college football playoff committee released their first official rankings of the football season. Uh, For those of you that are unfamiliar with sports or just don't care, let me tell you, uh, these rankings at this point in the season mean absolutely nothing. They just give um, fun discussions and debate to people like me that are really kind of into the college football. It helps us to have some discussion about who's better than who. And after yesterday, I can still make the case that West Virginia is good enough to be in there. Don't worry, they're going to lose to OU in a couple weeks, and uh, that dream will be dashed. But, but the, the playoff committee has a great campaign going. Anytime you turn on a college football game, if you have the commercials going uh, you know, between um, quarters or plays or whenever they put them on, uh, you'll see highlights, and there will be music, and then there's the big question, who's in? You want to find out who's going to be in this playoff. Only four teams can make it. And so they put those two words up on the screen, who's in, and encourage you to tune in to their program where they release the rankings on Tuesday nights. I share all that with you. You can forget all of it. Uh, Just to get to the question, who's in? That's the question that we're going to try to answer together this morning as we traverse Uh, the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11. Who's in the family of God? Who are God's people? And we're going to answer that the family of God, and this is your main idea, the family of God includes all those who receive the word of God. And the exhortation is going to follow suit to simply receive the word of God. You can see your outline there in four parts, and uh, we will take the most time, I think, on the first one. So don't get worried when you're like, oh my gosh, he's been talking forever and we're not really on point one. Don't stress out. We'll endure. We'll make it. So let's pray. We'll talk context and then we'll get into the text. Father, we need your help this morning to understand uh, just such a really incredible part of your word. And ask that you would Help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. That we would uh, listen well to your spirit. God, most importantly, we ask that you would help us to experience you this morning. That we would once again be boiling over with joy at our salvation. That we would once more be reminded of the cross and of Christ's love for us. We be reminded of the resurrection, of the certain hope we have of eternal life together with you and one another. We come here because Jesus Christ is risen. We come expecting to hear from him and you again this morning. You are our God, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. Chapter 1, Jesus teaches the church about what their responsibility is going to be. tells the apostles, you're going to bear witness about me in Judea, Jerusalem first. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And that kind of mini Great Commission, it sets the tone for the whole book as we see the gospel go from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends 
of the earth. After Jesus tells the disciples that, he ascends to his throne in heaven where, from where he sits and rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down. Men and women begin declaring the wonderful works of God in various languages that they had never before learned. Peter preaches a sermon, and the people hear uh, Christ has been killed, and those who have faith in him can have life. And they ask Peter, what, what do we do in response to the fact that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah? And he says, repent and be baptized. And there the, the church is born in many ways. From that point forward, the church continues to proclaim the gospel and the teaching of Jesus permeates all of Jerusalem. Things are going really well. Miracles are being performed and there's just a teensy little bit of resistance from the religious establishment. And that little bit of resistance, which is just kind of slaps on the wrist and a night in jail, and they, they, them telling the apostles, stop preaching this message, you're upsetting a good thing that we have going. It turns into something much more severe in chapter 7. When Stephen stands up and preaches a message of Christ crucified, and uh, he tells the religious establishment how they're following in the pattern of Israel who has over and over and over again rejected and killed God's prophets. And he says, you've done it again. You've rejected and killed Jesus. There's an implicit invitation for them to repent of their sins, to come to Christ. And instead, they kill him. They stone him to death, and as he's being stoned to death, he lays in his own blood and he prays that God would forgive those who are stoning him. And Saul is standing there, and, and we learn that Saul was later converted on the Damascus road, and he is going to be the primary carrier of the gospel. It will turn out to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, to the ends of the earth. Interestingly, we're reintroduced to Peter at the back end of chapter 9. We're reintroduced to Peter so that we can be reminded of his significance and his role among the disciples. He's their spokesperson. He's the, the front man. I don't remember who the front man of the Beatles was or if they had one, but that's kind of what he is. Whoever you think, the, is it Ringo Starr? Is it, was he the front man? I don't, I don't know the Beatles. John? Yeah, whoever was like the, the face of the Beatles, like that's what Peter is. He's the face of the disciples. So he, he represents them. That's important because in chapter 10, as we saw last week, Peter goes and he takes the gospel to Gentiles. He witnesses the Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles and baptizes them. And that's going to give some consternation to the church in Jerusalem because to this point in history, those that are the church are Jewish and only Jewish. And now all of a sudden what we're seeing happen in Acts chapter 10 all the way to 11, 18, it's one unit, is that God is grafting the Gentiles into this tree of life so that now his people are both Jew and Gentile. It's anyone who is trusted in Christ. To have faith in Christ is to be a son and daughter of God. It's to be part of the people of God. It's, it's really incredible. And how God decides to show us this, to show Peter this, is by giving Cornelius, a Roman, a Gentile, non-Jewish person, a vision that Peter's going to come to him. 
and bring him the message of life. Subsequently, Peter has a vision. He's, he's about noon. He's hungry. He's on the roof. And he dreams about food. But not a good dream for a Jew to have because he dreams about what would be unclean food. Like, that was a weird dream. And all of a sudden, Cornelius' people are at his house. Like, you come with us. And by the time he gets to Cornelius' house, he figures out that God had meant to show him through the dream that he is making the Gentiles clean. That there's no distinction. Right? Peter says in verse 34 of chapter 10, Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but that in every nation the person who fears him and does what is right and is was it what is right is acceptable to him. And he goes on to say, what it means to be acceptable to God is to trust in Christ. And he gets to verse 43. Does all the prophets testify about him, that's Jesus, that through his name, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Like this is worse than when Saul was converted. He was a bad guy and he was persecuting the church, but at least he was Jewish. It's poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in other tongues, languages, and declaring the greatness of God. And Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay a few days. This this scene at the end of Acts chapter 10 should be familiar to us. Do you see these really familiar elements? Peter is preaching the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit is falling. Men and women are speaking in tongues and languages about the greatness of God. Everyone stands amazed. There is repentance and baptism. Now, what does this remind you of? I just snuck it in there in the context section, right? Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down initially. And now we see the Spirit is coming down again in the same way He fell on the Jews, on the Gentiles. And that's why our Jewish friends are amazed. They're going, wait a minute. The covenant promises of God are going to apply to the Gentiles also. That's why Peter's like hesitant in verse 47. It's like, normally I would withhold water for baptizing these people. Normally I wouldn't even eat with them. But God gave me a vision and God has brought me here. Peter's argument is that God has made the Gentiles clean. He's made those who are strangers to the covenant promise, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. He's made them part of the family of God. He's made them citizens together with the Jews. He's made them siblings with the Jews. He's made them living stones together with their Jewish brothers and sisters. They have received the gospel. The everyone who believes in Jesus can receive forgiveness of sins applies even to Gentiles. This is is incredible. And it was prophesied throughout the Bible. 
It's also previewed throughout the Bible. Just listen to some of these just prophecies that are easy to miss, and we can understand why it wasn't immediately evident that God would include the Gentiles. How about Genesis 12? The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples, all the families, all the clans on the earth will be blessed through you. Psalm 87, which we read earlier, speaks of Gentiles being brought into the city of God and counted as being born there. Isaiah 49.6, God is speaking to the Messiah, the servant, and he says, It's not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is incredible. God is saying to uh, the servant, it's not enough for you to just save Israel. I'm too glorious for that. I need you to reconcile the whole world to me. I need you to bring salvation to the ends of the earth everywhere. See it prophesied. We see it even previewed for us uh, throughout the Old Testament, right? And, and I think the funnest way to do this is to just look at Jesus' genealogy and pluck these Gentile women out of there, right? Typically, genealogies would be to show how pure a line it is that you come from. And Jesus' is really muddy and messy, right? In his genealogy in Matthew 1, you've got Tamar who deceived Judah into sleeping with her so that she could get pregnant and bear children. And do you know, do you know, where Jesus' lineage comes from is, is through Tamar, who, she's a Gentile, by the way. Or what about Rahab, non-Jewish woman, prostitute, hides the Israelite spies, and because of her faithfulness in that act, she and her family are saved. And guess what? Line of the Messiah comes through Rahab. Or, or what about Ruth, who puts the moose on Boaz in a field late at night, prompts him into marrying her and redeeming her, there's children, and the line of the Messiah comes through Ruth. But we can even look at, at Bathsheba, who is likely Jewish, but she was married to Uriah the Hittite, which Matthew points out for us. And one of the many things we learn from Jesus' genealogy is that it's not to show us how pure his heritage is, but that he is the one who will make pure those who are impure. He's the one who can make the unclean clean. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that Jesus comes for. Messed up sinners who will put their faith in the promise of God. I mean, we see this in Jesus' ministry also. He, he heals the centurion's servant. Centurion's not Jewish. He blesses and compliments the faith of the Canaanite woman that one starts out a little rough. He calls her a dog, but he's, he's showing the um, disciples that they shouldn't mistreat Gentiles, right? Or even, and I know she's not a Gentile, but she's a Samaritan, and we don't like Samaritans either. He drinks from the cup of a Samaritan woman at the well. And he, so even in his ministry, we see that Jesus is, is kind of breaking down this distinction between 
Jew and Gentile. He's, he's loving all kinds of people. He has a, a big heart. And then in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we see God's heart explicitly. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to bat, or sorry, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Judea, or sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth includes not just diaspora Jews, but Gentiles. God's heart for the nations is not mono-ethnic, it's multi-ethnic. God loves all kinds of people. When we have this vision of God's purposes shown to us, kind of fulfilled in Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. See, God's got a really big heart. His redemptive love has always been multicultural and interracial. It was never just about saving one group of people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him not perish but have eternal life. Friends, easy application here is that we want to have the same big heart that God does. We, like God, want to love the diversity that he's built into humanity. We want to love and care for people that are very different from us, that have different skin colors, come from different backgrounds and cultures. God loves those people. And he loves their cultures and their backgrounds so much so that he, notice this, maintains those distinctions even in heaven. The group in Revelation 7, uh, 9, and 10, they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So they, they remain, those distinctions, those things about them are still there. Those things about us in heaven will still be there. They'll still be celebrated. God has a, a big heart. He loves all kinds of people. And we should too. There, there's no room in this church or any church for uh, any air of racial superiority. There, there's no room for classism or favoritism. We're, we're to, to love as God loves, big-heartedly. Love our brothers and sisters in Christ. God's ability to uh, rescue uh, the worst of sinners should always cause us to stand amazed and remind us that, that we need His grace. And so does the person across from us. There, there's just no room for boasting except for in the wonderful truth that, hey, I'm a, I'm a mess, but God loves me. And he'll, he, he loves you too. Will you turn from your sin and follow him? He loves messes like us. Still, I, this is such a, a big concept that the Gentiles are being made into part of the people of God, that they share in the same Holy Spirit of God. 
that they're united to the same Savior as one new man, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, part of the same body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, that it's explained a lot throughout the New Testament. It's revisited a lot. Like We're going to uh, deal with some of those, how this plays out later in Acts again. Uh, and remember in Galatians 2, like Peter stops eating with Gentiles to impress some other Jewish people, and Paul's like, Peter, you are in sin, and Peter has to repent. It's a whole, whole thing. But, but uh, we, we have some explanations of how this can be, how God does this. Uh, one comes in Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Romans 9, he says that true Israel isn't comprised of those who are physically Jewish, but of those who believe, right? He says it's not as though, Romans 9, verse 6, it's not as though God's word has failed. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul is saying it is not those who are descended from Abraham biologically who belong to Abraham, but those who have followed in his footsteps spiritually that are of Abraham's lineage. One is saved by God's promise, not by their pedigree. Again, in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, he reiterates this truth. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, and we saw this in Genesis 12 is what he's quoting, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. And that last part is really important. Those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You have to have faith to be part of the family of God. It can't be your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or your spouse's faith. No one can believe the gospel for you. You have to believe it for yourself. It is not those who are born Jewish, that are part of the family of God. It is those who are born again. It is not those who are born into a church that are part of the family of God. It is those who are born again. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. We, we must believe in Jesus ourselves if we are to have our sins forgiven. This is what Peter testifies. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The flip side of that is if you don't believe in Jesus, you will not receive forgiveness of sins. Friends, receive the word. Believe. Be adopted into the family of God. This is what Peter and the other Jews with him are witnessing at the end of Acts 10 is that even Gentiles 
can receive salvation. Even Gentiles can inherit the promises made to Abraham that are all answered yes in Christ. Even Gentiles can share this Holy Spirit. They're amazed. They baptize those who believe. Like we said, this is really shocking, this movement in Scripture. And so Peter gets some pushback here, and rightfully so. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. So other Jews criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is like, uh, I love Lucy. You've got some explaining to do, right? Peter's got some explaining to do here. Because there are very real laws in Leviticus about clean and unclean foods. And so Peter's in this precarious position where he's got to explain something that he's not even all the way comfortable with yet to uh, those, the church in the Jerusalem. And so we, we, sometimes I think we give these Jerusalem folks a bad hat. Like, how could they think that way? What's wrong with them? But, but I want, give them the benefit of the doubt here, okay? Because they've got hundreds of years of history of obeying these laws in Leviticus and then being really important. And all of a sudden, Peter's telling them, don't worry about those laws. <laughs> all right? Like, it, it's a big deal. These laws are a big deal. You know the story of, of Daniel in the lion's den and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they, they go into the fiery furnace because they're not going to bow down to the king and they're only going to honor God. Well, before those two really kind of big-time stories that we know is Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his friends refuse to eat the food that the king is giving them and barter to have vegetables so that they can keep a kosher diet and keep these clean laws. Really important. They're important enough for, and Peter tells us this in 10, but also in 11.8, he's talking about the vision he gets. And God tells Peter, kill and eat. You know, eat that bacon. And Peter is like, no, Lord. Like, ponder the significance of those words. No, Lord. Like, Peter is telling God, I'm not going to eat that stuff. These are important laws. And so we can't just throw them out the window, is what they're saying to Peter. What, what is going on here? It appears, from the vantage point of the church in Jerusalem, it appears as if Peter is in sin. And so they call him to explain himself. And notice what they do here. Instead of just condemning him or talking about him to other people behind his back, can you believe what Peter did? What a jerk. Really rough in his life. Instead of going to a prayer meeting, can we really pray uh, for Peter? He did this, 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 and this, and this. No, they go to Peter, they have a conversation with him, and they listen. Take home for us there is that we want to resolve to listen to those we have disputes with. We want to be good listeners. And they will listen to Peter, who gives his testimony. Verse 4, Peter began to explain to them step by step, I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down. Remember, we said it was like a picnic blanket with food on it. Being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. When I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. No, Lord, I said. For nothing impure or ritually 
unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men had arrived that had been sent from Caesarea. They arrived at the house we were, where we were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who was also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And so Peter basically comes back and says, God prepared Cornelius to hear the gospel. He prepared me to preach the gospel to Cornelius, and he poured out the same spirit on them, those Gentiles, as he did on us. He's shown me, we see in 1034, that now I truly understand God doesn't show favoritism, that this distinction is being done away with. He says earlier that I shouldn't call clean what God has made clean. And so Peter's whole argument here is that God has made and is making those Gentiles who will believe in Christ clean. That there's not a distinction between Jew and Gentile. You know, Paul picks up on this later in Galatians 3.28. You know that one? There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for they're all in Christ Jesus. All who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ Jesus. And he's not saying that you cease to be male or female, Jew or Greek when you become a Christian. What he's saying is these things that used to separate you, these distinctions, they no longer matter. Like, they're, they're still there and you can celebrate them, but they're subordinate to your being in Christ, being brothers and sisters in the gospel. But if you're like me, you've got some questions at this point for Peter. And the church is, they're kinder and more gracious than I am, so they don't ask him follow-up questions. Okay, that sounds great, Peter, that God has made the Gentiles clean, but I want to know how. Like, how is God able to just say, you know, those laws in Leviticus, not going to follow those anymore. Something seems fishy. Does it mean as Christians we can just pick and choose which laws we want to obey and which ones we don't want to obey? Well, the answer to the last question is no. We don't get to just pick and choose. We must obey all of God's word. But this side of the cross, some of the rules have changed because their purpose has been fulfilled. You have to understand, God legislates from his character and from his historical purposes. From his character and for his historical purposes. That which is legislated from his character transcends time and space. It is eternal. It will never change. And so that which comes from his character, we typically identify as the moral law. Things like the Ten Commandments. Remember when we went through the Ten Commandments? Those things aren't going to change. That, that applies to everyone all the time. For God to change the moral law would be for him to do violence against his character. 
He's never, there's never going to come a time when God says to you or tells anybody, look, go ahead and make idols and worship them. It's cool. Um, steal, great, you know, pillage, plunder, pirate, get after it, rules have changed. No, 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 no. The, the moral law is grounded in his character. That which is grounded in his character doesn't change. We still obey all those laws. Now, there's the second way that God legislates is for his historical purposes, and this applies to the people and the nation of Israel. Specific place, specific time, specific purpose. And this is where we come across the ceremonial or clean laws. The main purpose behind the clean laws were were to do two things. One, to show that Israel was not the nations around it, that they were distinct from them, and then two, to show us humanity's need to be cleansed, okay? So let, let me try to, to show you how this works out a little bit. Um, so the whole book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, you've got all these rules about uh, making sacrifices, what kind of clothes you can wear, you don't want to have two fabrics mixed together, uh, what kind of animals you can eat. God designates some as clean, others as unclean. And that corresponds to the difference between Jews and Gentiles. He says, he's made all these laws... And those apply specifically to Israel. So the Old Testament takes sacrifice and says, this sacrifice shows that we need atoned for sin. The clean laws show that God's people are not like other people, that they need to be holy to approach a holy God. And so as Christians, we don't follow these laws because we believe in Jesus. We don't make sacrifices because we believe in Jesus. We don't keep clean laws because we believe in Jesus. We don't make sacrifices because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who atones for all of our sin, past, present, and future. We don't need any more sacrifice. We got Jesus. Jesus is the one who cleanses us from all our sin and all our unrighteousness. Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us holy. See, the the point of these laws was to point us to Christ. And now that The reality of Jesus has come. We we don't need those shadows in the ceremonial law anymore. We don't don't follow these rules because we believe in Jesus. It's a little bit like, and this isn't a perfect illustration, uh, a woman whose husband goes off to World War II and she's got a little locket with his picture in there. She looks at it every day, sits on her porch, looks out uh, towards the sun setting and looks at the picture. And then one day, as she's she's looking at her picture, she looks up from the picture to the horizon and she sees a silhouette that she knows is her husband. And in her haste, she stands up, she throws that picture and that locket on the ground, runs out to him, wraps her arms around his neck and looks full in his face, filled with joy. why, Why does she toss the picture to the side? She doesn't need it now that the reality is in front of her. Likewise, these these ceremonial, these clean laws, these sacrifices, they were all meant to point us to Christ, pictures that anticipated Jesus. And now that the reality has come, we don't need them anymore. Jesus atones for our sins. Jesus makes us clean. There's a great picture of this in the book of Mark, in the first chapter Starting at verse 39, we read, Jesus went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. This is ludicrous. Lepers are not supposed to interact with other people. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46 tells us, the person with such an infectious disease must tear his clothes. Let his hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of his face and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. And so here's this guy who's supposed to live alone, be outside of the city, supposed to be saying, unclean, unclean, because he has leprosy, coming up to Jesus and saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, verse 41, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he was sternly warned and sent away at once, told, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as the testimony to them. Yet when he went out and began to proclaim his cleansing widely, and the news spread, the result was Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. Jesus makes the leper clean. He says, don't tell anybody. If you tell a bunch of people about this, like places are going to be filled with paparazzi, not going to be able to enter into a city. The man, this news is too good. He tells everyone. Instead of shouting, unclean, unclean, he's going about saying, Jesus made me clean. Jesus made me clean. You see what happens here. The story ends with the leper being able to go inside the camp, inside of cities. And where's Jesus? Verse 45, he was out in deserted places. You see what what Mark is showing us here. In order to cleanse the leper, Jesus has to take the leper's place. Jesus starts off the story in the city, and he ends the story where the leper should have been in desolate places. See, what happens on the cross is that Jesus takes our uncleanness, our sin, our dirt. He's cut off from God so that we don't have to be. He sheds his blood so that we can be cleansed. Jesus makes those who come to him in repentance and faith Those who are clean are not those who keep kosher, but those who observe the Lord's Supper. Those who are clean are not those who are physically circumcised, but those who have been circumcised in heart by the Holy Spirit. 
Those who are clean are those who have come to Jesus and said, I have nothing to offer. You are my Lord and my God. You can make me clean. And to all who come with the empty hands of repentance and faith, ready to receive the word, Jesus speaks a wonderful word. He says, I am willing. Be made clean. And those who have received this gift go forth saying, no longer uh, unclean and clean, but Jesus has made me clean. This is the testimony of every Christian you've ever met. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus is the one who makes us clean. He was crucified, dead, buried, and he rose from the dead so that we no longer have to fear death because we know there's a resurrection coming and we're walking in the newness of life now as people who have been made clean. God makes even Gentiles clean. He brings Jew and Gentile together in the person of Christ. Peter testifies and the church responds in verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. No objections to offer. And they glorified God saying, So then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. It changed their minds. When was the last time you changed your mind on something because of something you've learned in the Word of God? Let's be a people that is teachable, that submits ourselves to God's Word rather than standing above it and saying, there's no way it could mean this. Just as an excuse for our unwillingness to repent. Church is teachable, and I love the 180 here. They give glory to God because of his wonderful work. They praise him for bringing even the Gentiles into the family of God. Let's be people that rejoices in what God has done for us. And so to answer the question we started with, who's in the family of God? All those who will come to Jesus and say, Lord, make me clean. Anyone who will receive the word with the empty hand of repentance and the empty hand of faith. Our God is able and willing to save. We need only come to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your heart is big enough for us. A group of messy sinners daily in need of being reminded of the gospel. Daily in need of experiencing the power of Christ daily in need of your spirit filling us up. God, we confess that we are imperfect. We thank you that you can work with that. That positionally, you've declared us right with you in Christ who 
bore our penalty on the tree. That practically you're making us holy as you are holy each day. We thank you that each moment we spend here, we are closer to heaven, closer to Christ's return to make all things new. To this we look with eager expectation and hope. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.